0: Welcome to The Public Morality. The American Constitution just recently celebrated its 235th birthday. On January 6, 2020, we witnessed those that put an end to 233 years of peaceful transfer of power, and a number of polls suggested many Americans view democracy in crisis. In fact, beginning of the year, NPR polls cited 64% of Americans believe the US democracy was in crisis and at risk of failing. While many are in agreement that American democracy is in crisis, there seems to be a difference of opinion when specifically addressing what that actually means. Joining me to discuss American democracy for our Constitution Day broadcast is Cornell legal scholar Aziz Rana. Professor Aziz Rana, welcome to The Public Morality.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Mm
0: Back in 2020, when we had Professor Lawrence Tribe on the broadcast for Constitution Day, um, he was worried about how long the experiment could sustain itself. Two years later, how do you assess the
1: state of American democracy? So my own view is that the, the American constitutional project has really never from the founding been particularly democratic and that to the extent that we think of it as democratic it's been the function of really sustained social movement pressure oftentimes from those uh, on the bottom frankly and that in a way the politics of the last decade has just sort of exposed the nature of our institutions and forced us to confront some of the real limitations of our existing institutions and so rather than thinking of it as, you know, we had this ideal, near-perfect liberal democracy, and is the experiment under threat. I think a better way to think of it is, well, what is required in the present for us to actually have a genuinely democratic political community? And if that means pretty profound changes from the nature of the institutions that we've had, then that's really the task for the present. Back uh, in January,
0: uh, it's sort of related to your previous answer, the NPR Poll revealed uh, 64% of, the, of Americans believe America, US democracy is in a crisis and a risk of failing. My question uh, when you consider the nation was founded per the Declaration of Independence on the civic virtue of liberty and equality, but in practice, and sort of gets to your point, applied, was applied almost exclusively to the gentry class, disenfranchising three quarters of the population. Built on the duality of uh, economic duality of American African American chattel slavery and the appropriation of Native American lands, um, I guess we could say that, that that if you look at what's been put on paper, that Amer- American democracy has
1: always been in crisis. I mean, so that that's certainly my view, and and maybe one of the ways, even more specifically, to talk about this is that we we essentially have a view of American politics that's really a product of a contingent historical period, the mid 20th century. So the New Deal achievements that incorporate large segments of the working class, the war against Nazi Germany, that mainstreams the idea of the US as an anti-racist society committed to creedal values of liberty and equality. And then the consolidation of racial reform and inclusion through cases like Brown versus Board of Education against the backdrop of the Cold War. And so there's this period that I think has come to define what the country means. But in a way, if you look at the long deray of American history, the story is a lot more complicated. And that rather than being the antithesis of the authoritarianisms that we see abroad, for large chunks of American history, for many people in this country, our institutions and practices actually reproduced various forms of authoritarianism. So that in the United States and, you know, across a good part of the country, particularly in the South, we had a system of representation that was not just racially exclusionary, but that also through state-based representation, dramatically overrepresented a particular kind of racial and political elite that promoted something like a Southern white authoritarianism. And that's as much part of the history of our own institutions and that we're basically seeing versions of in the present as that story about American universal values that we associate from the mid-century. And so in a way, I think the project of the present today is almost something that's in a kind of like time warp that if we were reading Du Bois in the 30s and 40s on what's wrong with the American political system, he'd say the problems have to do with the structure of state-based representation, the nature of the electoral college, how the Senate is constructed, the power that the judiciary has, the gerrymandering that takes place in the house, the systematic disenfranchisement that exists for large numbers of people. And if you were to describe, well, what are the problems with the American political process today, it's the same. And that tells us about the kind of enduring features of anti-democracy that are just as much a part of the American story as the things that we valorize. Hmm. That said,
0: uh, many many have stated that America was as close to becoming a full democracy with the signing of the 1965
1: Voting Rights Act. How do you see that? So, you know, my my view about this is that So I guess I'd want to take this apart in a a couple different ways. The first thing that I'd say is that the classic civil rights achievements, which are massive achievements, were built on a very specific idea of the problems with the country. And the idea was that the country was essentially a liberal society committed to principles of freedom and equality from the founding but marred by certain kind of archaic and prejudicial values like racism or sins like native expropriation and slavery. And so that the goal of the 20th century was effectively completing the liberal project by including outsiders into the terms of American life. And so that really primarily all what you needed were formal changes to the law, getting rid of segregation, ensuring that you have um, voting rights and anti-discrimination measures that incorporate as many outsider groups as possible. My own view is that while that project is absolutely a laudable one, in, in a way I think it misunderstood some of the roots of the American experience. And in particular, the extent to which the US was not just organized on principles of liberal equality, like in the Declaration of Independence, but was also organized through a project of colonial expansion and control, where the expropriation of indigenous land, the use of coerced, especially uh, African um, labor through systems like slavery, were essential to economic growth, territorial expansion, and they built into the country structures of economic hierarchy and political authority that just the end of formal uh, segregation did not necessarily disrupt. And so that even though you had these civil rights achievements, you still had a reality that Martin Luther King described in 1967, which was the reality of poverty amid plenty. And it's why he said after the end of those sort of formal achievements that what the country nonetheless needed in order to confront sort of the extremes of poverty and immiseration in the country was a fundamental restructuring of the architecture of American society. And it's that conversation about how to actually dramatically transform hierarchical structures, make economic independence and opportunity genuinely available That's the conversation that was foreclosed over really the half century from 1965 to 2015. And instead you saw the proliferation of corporate power, the increasing use of a carceral system as a way of managing the poor, and that what we've been dealing with really over this last decade from the financial crisis to the the kind of rolling crises involving mass incarceration to the US wars overseas is the country having to confront the fact that it never actually adequately addressed the underlying problems that sustained inequality. And that those underlying problems aren't gonna be changed just by changing the laws. They're gonna be altered by really engaging in a significant effort to shift who has power, who has money and wealth in this country and what opportunities people are generally provided. To, to that end I'm, I'm also wondering uh,
0: just going back to the Voting Rights Act for just a minute how much of that those achievements say the 64 Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act how much do you attribute those achievements beyond the work of the civil rights movement to just the cold War considerations and, and the real politique um, uh, of that sort of global struggle what, how does that play into into, into that narrative
1: so I, I think these things are absolutely connected that it's part of uh, you know, the point that I was making earlier, that the mid 20th century is a very kind of unique historical period in American life. So that the reality of the Cold War creates real incentives among white political elites to push for various forms of, uh, of racial uh, change and racial reform. And this is because the us is attempting to kind of to win hearts and minds across a world that is overwhelmingly non-white in asia and africa during a period of decolonization in the context of another superpower the soviet union that has real anti-racist credentials because it's been very closely associated with a number of anti-colonial movements and this makes segregation disenfranchisement a real eyesore for national elites and it pushes also the reality of this external threat pushes elites in both political parties toward a kind of middle common ground where you can have an emerging national agreement about the need for reform so that is a, a significant backdrop and it's a backdrop that then intersects with the emergence of a very powerful domestic social movement. And it's a social movement that's whose publicity is expanded through the nature of modern television and media through the confrontation with an extreme and far right form of white supremacy across large chunks of the South where you have young black people engaged in civil disobedience, facing violence and brutality from the police. And that's being broadcast on evening news. So all of these things fit together to generate the changes that we saw then. And I think another way of telling the story of the last half century and really of the the last 30 years is that, in a way, the end of the Cold War did two things. It both supercharged an American self-congratulation about its institutions, that actually, you know, whatever might be the democratic dysfunctions of the American political process, you know, that's all overstated because the institutions are near ideal. See, so we won the Cold War. But then it also essentially eliminated the foundations of that co- that cohesion that existed across the political spectrum, the mainstream political spectrum. Without the Soviet antagonist, you see growing forms of party and political polarization, And the kinds of conditions that generated consensus building in Congress in the mid-1960s essentially evaporated, and instead you had the growing lurching to the right of the Republican Party in ways that then treated those achievements as a direct, almost existential threat to its ability to maintain power. I'm wondering... uh...
0: Given given the complexities you would articulate about where we are in, in the present moment of American democracy, that um that uh, feel that American democracy is in, in decline, that might we also be guilty of desiring a quick fix that was somewhere just over the horizon, whether it's in the form of the next election or some major conference, et cetera. And how do you how do you see that?
1: I, I think that's that's exactly you know, a a significant problem with American politics and especially I think American politics on the left and the center left. It's one of the things that I think links together in some way. So I probably isn't a surprise to your audience, but I was a Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016 and 2020. One thing that I would say, though, connects the Sanders campaigns to the Obama campaign in 2008 is this idea that maybe if we just elect the right person, and have a movement behind the president. Somehow, that will unblock all of the, you know, the 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 fractured um, dysfunctions in the American political system, or overcome the entrenched forms of power and hierarchy that exist. Or even today, if you know, if we pass one bill like that bill, will somehow solve the problem? That there's some kind of silver bullet. And unfortunately, that's just not the nature of the problems that we face. That outside of the political system, the last half century has seen really the demobilization of the institutions that provided a home for movement politics and reform politics. And whether these are civil rights institutions or unions in particular, the, the fact that they've largely been rolled back means that it's much harder to organically build uh, a kind of popular politics around a transformative agenda. And then if we look at the constitutional system, you know, this is on Constitution Day, the, the extent to which it's riddled with veto points, and then precisely because of these veto points, it gives so much uh, authority to a a small minority coalition that's not representative culturally, politically or demographically of the majority of the country, you know, that really shapes and misshapes the nature of policy that comes out of the Supreme Court that emerges out of Congress, who even ends up being elected. Um, And all of these things have to be confronted across a multiple um, set of of policy frameworks and movement actions they can't really be addressed through a single silver bullet but I, i will say this i also understand that desire for a quick fix because there's this sense that we we're kind of confronting these incompatible time horizons there's a worry that the right wing is increasingly embracing a brand of authoritarian politics that we face the specter of a potentially existential presidential campaign in 2024 with Trump, somebody that was involved essentially in um, an effort to um, subvert uh, the 2020 election. And so this feels immediate, it feels existential. And at the same time, the effort to actually renew and strengthen our institutions, either unions, civil rights organizations, other kind of movement homes, or our political institutions, um, like our uh, system of, of, of uh, electoral politics, that's something that's going to take potentially decades, that it could take a very long time. And so we're kind of confronted by those different time horizons. And uh, it's just, in a way, the predicament of the moment. And it's something that we have to face with open eyes, and then sort of struggle through step by step achievements to, to reconcile. So over the past,
0: I say, two decades, so, uh, some of the uh, institutions you referenced—I'm um, speaking uh, specifically—say, with the federal institutions like the Electoral College, Supreme Court rulings, and you know, then you have the state legislatures uh, in many states making it more difficult, in some capacity, to vote. Is that not, in your view, aiding a particular? Uh, non-inclusive vision of America. How do you see that?
1: I think that's unfortunately precisely the problem. And we can see it, you know, maybe as a, a way of, of, it, of giving a good example, we can think about the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, uh, Roe v. Wade and um, getting rid of a constitutionally protected right to abortion as a pretty clear example. So, you know, how is it that a decision like that comes about? Well, we have a system where, on the one hand, the Supreme Court and the federal courts are incredibly powerful when it comes to constitutional interpretation, in large part because it's very, very difficult to actually have popularly authorized amendments. So we have an amendment system that's largely foreclosed to formally change the text of the Constitution incredibly hard. You need two-thirds in both houses of Congress, and then you need three-fourths of the states. So that pushes constitutional politics around the most important issues into the courts. But then who's on the court? That's through a nomination confirmation process run by the president and the Senate. But the president isn't directly elected. It's elected through an electoral college, which means that even though only one election since 1988 did Republicans actually win, a Republican candidate actually win the majority vote. Republicans have won, you know, multiple presidential elections, and so been able to nominate and confirm a countless number of judges. Trump alone was able to nominate and confirm, despite not winning the presidential vote, three judges, justices to the Supreme Court, where the totality of justices confirmed by Democrats to the Supreme Court since 1968 has been five. Now, Once those presidents then nominate somebody to the court, it goes to a Senate, but the Senate is organized through state-based representation, which gives overwhelming representative authority to people from smaller rural states. And so you have vastly different voting power in this country, depending on where you are. All of this consolidates a very specific political coalition which is why now you have a situation on the court where even though that coalition has a minority of support, it has a supermajority on the Supreme Court. And so then the court can overturn a right, a right by the way that enjoys something like 60% plus support in favor of a position that is a minority position in the US. You know, if we had anything like a functional representative system or a constitutional amendment process, Right now, already, an abortion right would be probably in the text of the Constitution. If we had a process like most countries in the world where you need support in Congress and then goes to a national referenda, or at the very least, there'd be a federal law protecting the right. But all of this channels constitutional politics to the court and then gives a small um, coterie of judges representative of a minority coalition overwhelming amounts of power. And then to make things even worse, precisely because that coalition is a minority coalition, there's a growing sense that the only way that it can have its interests met are precisely by using the instruments of minority rule that are embedded in the constitutional system. The system incentivizes, essentially, one of the political parties to invest in de-democratization, anti-democracy, as its means for holding on to power. And this is something that has been true, unfortunately, about the constitutional system for long um, chunks of time. If we tell the story of the end of Reconstruction and the rise of white supremacy across the South, that's a story of lawless violence against Black people, but it's also a story of local white elites using the instruments of state based representation in the constitutional system to maintain a form of white authoritarianism. And so we're seeing the kind of repetition of specific cycles. Um, And it's, you know, part of what's especially troubling about the moment.
0: You you mentioned Du Bois earlier. I mean, that's sort of central to uh, Black Reconstruction, the the last argument
1: you just made. That's sort of the thesis statement for Du Bois' uh, work. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, so what, what Du Bois argues there so among many things, the first thing is that book is a really foundational book for highlighting the profound successes and achievements of Reconstruction itself. That we had a period, uh, you know, in this country where you had multiracial political coalitions that provided real, meaningful improvements to people on the ground, especially to poor white and black uh, constituents. So the rise of a public education system in the South, the redistribution of access to to land. Um, the press for various forms of literacy, the development of a black um, elect, uh, not just a black electoral base of so black voting rights, but black officials being elected to various levels of government. And the defeat of reconstruction is a story of sustained, you know, white violence on the ground by various planter elites along with Northern, ultimately Northern indifference to this violence. But then also the manipulation of the constitutional system, state control over the electoral process that we're seeing all you know today with issues like gerrymandering, um, alongside the way that state-based representation through the Senate, through the presidency, uh, and then ultimately through the courts ends up shaping the nature of political institutions. And it was why um, Du Bois, when he was writing and reflecting in the 30s and 40s, on reconstruction saw that story as just as relevant for the problems in the 30s and 40s of the failure of the large political coalitions to actually address ongoing forms of racial injustice. Why was it that there wasn't an anti-lynching law that had been passed by Congress? And that was a function of how state-based representation in the constitutional system gave overwhelming power to particular pockets that allowed them to then maintain their own authority. Um, I will say, though, that one of the things that I think is noteworthy about this moment that is different than, let's say, the period from the 60s through the 90s is that there has been a really significant shift in the nature of the Republican Party uh, approach to the political process that, that has to be sort of recognized and, and engaged with. So maybe I'll, I'll stop there and I'm happy to kind of elaborate if that's something that you'd like to discuss. No, no, say, say more about, about that shift, if you would. Yeah. So, you know, if I mentioned Dobbs, I think it's really useful to, to compare Dobbs to an early, the, the abortion decision, compare Dobbs to an earlier decision in 1992 called Casey. And in Casey, the court ends up splintering, but ultimately upholds most of a set of restrictions on abortion rights while at the same time upholding the uh, Roe v. Wade and the right to an abortion as a constitutionally protected right. And the thing that's actually striking about that moment is that even more of the justices on the court at that point in time are Republican nominees. Eight of the nine justices. today, you know we're talking about six, but at that point it was eight of the nine. And the only justice that was a democratic nominee, white, was a, was nominated by Kennedy and was opposed actually to Roe versus Wade. And so that tells you something about that political moment that just because you had eight of nine Republican justices, that didn't mean that Roe v. Wade ends up getting overturned. And I would say that that is a function of where the Republican Party was. that, in many ways, the story of the, the latter part of the 20th century was that the Republican Party was the majority party in this country. It had the two most popular politicians, Nixon and Reagan, who won landslide reelections, and its ideas, uh, including basically, the, you know, various kinds of retrenchment on civil rights, but also, uh, you know, market-based solutions and a focus on the quote-unquote free market. These ideas were ascendant ideas and i think that ends up impacting how the party thought about its coalition it was attempting to build i think a bigger tent because it believed that it can actually represent a majority and that ends up influencing which folks get nominated to the court it's a different range of potential judges and it's why some of those judges end up drifting toward the center the difference now and this is i think the comparison in a way to the late 19th century uh, and white politics in the South is that the party is a minority party. Its ideas are not ascendant, And in fact, the story really since the 90s is that many of the ideas associated with the American right um, have become deeply unpopular, including you know, support for an unfettered market, attacks on the government's responsibility to take care of people. Uh, all of these things have undermined the kind of status of the Republican party as a majority party. But what it's then done is it's incentivized the leadership not to pursue big tent policies because it sees the wind at its back, but instead to invest in the instruments of minority rule in order to ensure generational control. And so you end up pushing to the court folks that really have extreme views that are out of step with the vast majority of the country. And then you take advantage of the fact that there's only nine justices, they serve for life with no ethics oversight, and there's no other alternative like an amendment process for constitutional change. You take advantage of these instruments to entrench generationally policies that are unpopular. Um, And that's that's a real profound shift in I think the nature of the American right over the course of the last sixty years, and of course, that's also intersects with the end of the Cold War and the end of external incentives on corralling the right toward the center.
0: If the tangible throughline in American democracy is liberty and equality, would it not also be fair to suggest that there is an intangible throughline in the form of paradox, and what? we may be witnessing today is that paradox becoming the
1: dominant thread in in the culture. Your thoughts, sir? So this is where maybe we, we might agree and perhaps disagree a little bit. I would say that if you look at most of American history, probably the most popular and powerful political ideology is some ideology that combines a really rich and thick account of internal equality and freedom. So the kinds of values that you might associate with the Declaration of Independence, ideas of of, of, of political self-rule, economic self-rule, but with really intense forms of external control and subordination typified by indigenous expropriation, the enslavement of black persons. And that, you know, figures that embody this are people like Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, Andrew Jackson, and that this has been, you know, some combination effectively of what you might call economic populism and white nationalism. And that in a way, the period that stands out that is kind of exceptional is this mid-20th century that that moves more or less from the 30s to the 70s in which for a variety of different reasons that ideological framework was suppressed and that instead a brand of liberalism that we associate with racial liberalism with economic liberalism connected to the new deal that's tied to a a notion of the U.S. as um, having a kind of exceptional role on the global stage to promote freedom and equality, all of those things end up getting emphasized as the heart of American politics. And in a way, I think part of what we've been seeing over the last few decades is that while The mid-20th century compacts vision of the country still remains, I think, the most powerful way that most Americans think and talk about the US. We're seeing really the revival of that older strain of American politics. And so we're forced to confront the fact that the US seems to mean multiple things. It means both the kind of story from Andrew Jackson and Thomas Jefferson and the story that we like to tell—that's you know—that's essentially from King and uh, FDR and the victory over Nazi Germany during World War II.
0: And, and for the record, when I, when I say liberty and equality, I'm I'm talking about what was originally committed to the Declaration of Independence and not um, any type of uh, overt practice. Let us just mm-hmm. mean
1: say it like yeah. that. And, you know, I think that this is, the, this is the tension even in the Declaration, so that, you know, Jefferson is the author, and so Jefferson includes the universal language that we associate with the Declaration, but he also includes, I mean, this is, this is part of what makes these, um, these texts so kind of difficult to work through. He also includes, as grievances, the concern that, that Britain is inciting... Um, indigenous peoples perhaps to engage in warfare against settlers, um, Anglo settlers, that he's perhaps inciting enslaved persons um, to be armed against those that are settlers. And so that the actual grievances are more complex than the story of universal inclusion that, that we most associate with the Declaration. And that doesn't mean that that universal story doesn't speak to a profound and enduring truth because it's that universal language that communities, including those historically subordinated, have held onto as a way of retelling, reframing, reconstructing the American project. But it does mean that we have to tell the history from both sides or else we can't really, you know, account for what the great achievements are. Like we can't really be in a sense, genuinely true to what's worth Uh, praising and lauding about the American experience if we basically tell a story that it was always, the good has always been foreordained. Yeah, and as far as the declaration goes, I mean, I think the correct, the
0: exact language in terms of Native Americans, I think Jefferson references merciless savages. And the piece you talk about, the slave trade, that was edited out by a coalition of Southern planters as well as Northern merchants involved in the transatlantic slave trade. So it's paradox all over that document.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: How important is the term settler empire to the American narrative in your view?
1: So, I mean, this is, uh, you're you're referencing arguments from my first book, uh, Two Faces of American Freedom. And my argument there is that The best way to really understand American constitutional development and political development is to appreciate the similarities between the US project and other uh, societies in which you have the transplantation of settler communities into what are effectively non-European lands. So this would be the French in Algeria, but also the English in Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, Canada. And that just like these societies, the U.S. has a lot in common, especially the separation between a set of rights that are provided to settler insiders, as opposed to various forms of discrimination and exclusion for those that are on the outside, either indigenous peoples, or other migrant communities that are oftentimes imported, very obviously uh, enslaved black persons to engage in in hard coerced forms of of work. Um, And that this ends up shaping a set of defining institutional practices in the US. So this very rich internal account of freedom that we've discussed, but also a commitment to territorial conquest because of the belief that you need land in order to ensure that everybody internally can be free. And then also because this is a pre-industrial society, um, an argument that for some to enjoy free labor, others will have to engage in hard or degraded forms of work because free labor isn't something that can be made universal. And this ends up shaping um, lots of different kinds of work practices in the US. And then finally, you know, a surprising set of policies, especially in the 19th century, which is relatively open migration policies, but for folks coming from Europe. So the majority of states and territories in the 19th century provide for non-citizen voting, but if you're European or access to Western land grants. And this builds the idea of the US as an immigrant nation for Europeans, but that's something that's very clearly racially circumscribed. And all of these are fairly foundational features of the American Past and that the story of the 20th century is, in a profound sense, I think, the overcoming of many of the exclusions that are associated with what I was describing as settler empire. So, real achievements and achievements that are that proceed through multiracial coalitions. But the failure, in a way, I think, to own up to the depth of this structural history, the fact that. You know, the story that we tell of the U.S. as an exceptional nation because it's always just been free and equal obscures the way in which the U.S. is one piece of a global European colonial history. And then that has real consequences for the kinds of reform politics we have in the present. Our willingness to think of reform as about just ending formal discrimination laws, but and our unwillingness to think about reform as... You know, a project of really significant transfers in wealth, power, and opportunity to those that were historically subordinated.
0: Staying on that thread, how much, in your view, does the founding of America rooted in a post-colonial enterprise impact that its tangible commitments to democracy,
1: however, those are defined? So I, I think that there are a couple ways in which the fact that the U.S. was a break from England uh, ends up having, you know, really significant uh, effects. Like one is the American constitutional culture, the focus on constitutions. That, you know, when the U.S. writes its uh, federal constitution, 1787, and then it gets this is, since we're doing Constitution Day, and then when it, it's uh, put into effect in 1789, that's a historically really unusual development. Um, It's why today, you know, our federal constitution, depending on how you date things, is either the oldest still active or very close to it. And the reason why the U.S. is writing that kind of a document has a lot to do with the story of imperial breakdown, which is that there are real international reasons for writing a text like this. It's a way of asserting independence from a previous colonial power, so claiming equal sovereignty on the global stage. It's a way of establishing for national elites a set of values internal to the society that can then justify the authority of those elites. And it's why the episodes of constitution writing globally that we see take place really in the context of the breakdown of empire. So the US in 1789, but then there's an explosion of constitution writing in the context of the European uh, Revolutionary Wars in 1848, and then following World War I, and then following World War II, and then, you know, most recently with the end of the Soviet Union in 19- from 89 to 91. Um, and so, in a way, the U.S. is one of the early exemplars of this. It's part of what really attaches the idea of constitutionalism and constitution writing to the American project. And it's part of why the US understands what it does on the global stage is promoting constitutionalism. And also um, the reason that a number of post-colonial states think of the US as meaningfully part of the story of anti-imperial change. Um, Now that of course has also been historically tied to the ways in which the U.S. has attempted to use that status to then justify uh, intervening or interfering in the internal politics of other countries in a form that's kind of an extension of old-fashioned empire. But um, both elements of that, the U.S. is an exemplar for the global south and the U.S. is engaged in a kind of imposition can be true at the same time.
0: If you look at
1: um, sort of dueling polarities,
0: Um, one side embracing a more literal interpretation of the constitution seemingly beholden to the the mores in my view of men that could not appreciate the advancements made by running water. Um, the other side, there's another, I mean, another side of of that polarity is that this document is irrelevant. Um, a bunch of powdered wig slaveholders, uh, articulating their self interests. Uh, my question to you, sir, um. Between those two polarities, where do we go from here?
1: So I think I think it's really useful right now that there's a growing recognition that the kind of broader political culture that promoted, let's say, conservative originalism, that one of those polls, is being put under pressure. Because part of the reason why the conservative arguments about, hey, we should go back to whatever the founders might have thought the Constitution means, part of the reason why that argument gained such dominance, you know, starting in the 1970s and 1980s, is because of a general kind of public culture that just extolled the genius of the founders. That if you have a public culture where the most popular historical books are books about the genius of the founders and when you know the way that we talk about the constitutional system is that it's near ideal and the way that we think about the American project is that it's solved problems of race and inequality then that's a very comfortable home for conservatives to essentially contest really meaningful achievements by saying well if it's if the founders were such geniuses and the system is so perfect, why don't we just implement whatever it is that they might've wanted in the 18th or the 19th century? And so today, I think it's a really valuable development that people are like, well, wait a second, maybe there are problems with the system and maybe the founders legacy is much more paradoxical in the way that we've been discussing than simply, uh, you know, a, a set of like near perfect achievements. But then that raises the question about where do we go from here? And even if my own view is that for a, re- for a proper de- democratic community, we're gonna have to, to have a very, very different kind of constitutional order. I don't think the appropriate solution right now would be to rip up the document and just like write something new because of our context of intense polarization and conflict. I think where we go from here is to find important reforms that can steadily push us in a direction that's more consistent with what our underlying values are. And to me, probably the most important reforms in the present are reforms, for, for instance, to our voting system. So that there's a number of bills that you know, if you're on the left or if you're on the the center, um, I think you can kind of rally around as good bills in Congress that deal with strengthening the Voting Rights Act, that deal with getting rid of gerrymandering, that deal with moving toward multi-member districts that include DC as a state, that require, for instance, getting rid of the filibuster. And these are all tangible improvements that would help us, you know, steadily transform the kind of constitutional system we have in ways that still maintain contact with the the kinds of investments that people understandably have in their own political project.
0: Well, with that said, is the Constitution, in your view, sufficient uh, in its present form? Given the nation, as you sort of alluded to earlier in our conversation, given the nation's inordinate amount of economic dependence on
1: racial capitalism? So, you know, my, my own position is that the constitution from the founding has been a significant constraint on democratic voice. I mean, the basic structure of the constitutional order was meant to fracture the voice of, of, of poor people in the country. Um, that there was a real wariness and suspicion of um, poor white male uh, majorities. And so you have all of these veto points that effectively are intended to limit perhaps the one thing that those communities have, which is um, the power of the ballot. And that is a flaw that runs from 1789 to the present. And if I were today, to think about, well, what kind of a constitutional system do I think the U.S. should have? It would look a lot more like the vast number of constitutions that have emerged really over the course of the 20th century outside of the U.S. The U.S.'s system, the extent to which the constitution is so hard to amend, it's the fact that it's pretty fundamentally unrepresentative across a number of different dimensions makes it a global outlier. And I would want a system that uh, is much more representative, that is easier to change, that empowers political coalitions and majorities. But here's the thing, I, given the nature of American politics in the present, I don't think the solution right now is to let's say have a convention. You know, it's telling that the folks that want a convention, for instance, are on the right. Um, to, to, to further entrench the kind of anti-democratic elements of the constitutional system. And it's not clear to me that if we were to have a convention in the present, that we'd have a document that's appreciably better than the one that we have right now, it might be substantially worse. And so I think we, we need to maintain a kind of horizon that thinks about, well, what would be the types of institutions that are actually compatible with democracy? Um, stronger legislatures, excuse me, um, a court that is substantially reformed so that you have term limits, um, you have larger numbers of people on the court, you have other pathways for constitutional change, and then working in the here and now to make the kinds of tangible improvements um, that can, can sort of steadily shift the terrain of American politics. Uh, while recognizing that you know, any change is gonna face pretty extreme forms of backlash and that we have to be really careful about the types of strategic choices we make when we open up the system. One of the uh,
0: historically unique things in my view about American democracy is that it has traditionally been those marginalized voices who were originally left out of the experiment that have moved the nation closer to that amorphous, more perfect union, if you would, whether it's, you know, abolitionists, whether it's women, whether it's civil rights movement, gay and lesbian brothers, sisters, so on and so forth. But that said, I think at this point, you would have even a difference in that conversation you were just referring to within marginalized voices, which would say something, historically marginalized voices, would say something different. So I'm I'm looking, even we can go back in history, I'm looking at say Frederick Douglass's response to what you just offered would probably differ from that of the boys. How, how do you see that? I, I think that's
1: sort of, that's absolutely been true, which is, you know, throughout American history, even within sort of the, let's say the movements of those that have been oppressed, and we can think about black politics, they've been multiple trajectories and orientation. So that in the 1960s, there was a traditional civil rights movement that really maintained contact with the governing documents and with a story of the U.S. as exceptional, as founded in freedom and equality. And then there was a politics of black radical internationalism that read the U.S. as um, as an experiment in colonialism, and that what the country needed was a sustained project of decolonization. Now, my own view is that these orientations, even if they saw themselves as conflictual, both have served really important functions in pushing forward conversations about American meaning, in pressing for different kinds of reform agendas, that sometimes you need a radical flank in order to get even just moderate changes so that these have oftentimes worked together. But that one of the problems about how we read American history is that we tend to read all of the victories as just victories achieved by the, the kind of more moderate elements that remained either constitutionally or politically respectful. We tell the story of the radical dissidents as you know effectively a story of their defeat, their irrelevancy, their destructiveness, rather than seeing how all of these perspectives kind of work together to create an environment that can meaningfully change the country. And even how the buckets that we place people in might not be historically accurate. So we tell a story about King, where King is the avatar of an incredibly conventional account of the civil rights movement. Yet when we started our conversation, you know, I described words that King spoke and wrote. You know, King was arguing for a radical restructuring the you know very foundations of, of American architecture, or even Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass gets sort of trotted out sometimes because he believed the Constitution was an anti-slavery document, and so as a way of upholding the legitimacy of the constitutional system. But you know who Douglass was a friend of? John Brown. And you know what Douglass also believed in? The need for military rule of the South to break up the white planter landmass and distribute it across poor and black, poor white and black people to create something like a multiracial democracy in this country, so that you know folks end up having much more complicated histories that traverse these orientations, and that highlights how we need all of them to sufficiently address the present.
0: Professor Rana, Cornell University, thank you so much, sir, for joining us today on the
1: Public Morality. Thanks so much for having me. It was really my pleasure.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B Y R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.